Hey, Christ Community, greetings to our West Campus and our Traditions venue. Glad all of you are here. Uh, before we jump into the message, I want to encourage you to get involved in the Weld Project Connect opportunity on October 20th that we've been highlighting. This is our last serve day for 2017. We, we're a church that helps people who are caught in the cycle of poverty. God often spoke in his word about his heart for the poor and how following him involves serving those in our city who are in need. That's what Weld Project Connect is all about. By volunteering, you get to spend a few hours walking alongside a family or a person in need, helping them get the resources they need and getting to know them personally, getting to know their story. And and, and, and in all honesty, my experience with things like this is that you and I will end up being blessed as much or more um, by helping along the way. And so it's, it is a Friday afternoon, which I know is a bit of a challenge for many of you, but if you have the ability to adjust your schedule so that you can help out, would you prayerfully consider doing so? It may be outside your comfort zone. That's good. Let's get out of our comfort zone. Um, perhaps your e-group would want to do this together as a missional opportunity. You can check out our newsletter or our website for more details about where to sign up. Again, that's a week from Friday, October 20th, so it's coming up. And, and I'm just praying that God continues to give us and grow our heart as a church for the poor, for our neighbors in our city, those in our, neighbor, those in our, in our city who are caught in the cycle of poverty. Okay, today we are continuing our journey through the book of Luke, um, examining verse by verse the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. And we find ourselves in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. In these next few chapters of Luke, Jesus takes a very honest, very serious look at life. We're, we're calling this series Reality Check because that's exactly what these chapters represent. Jesus is giving us a major reality check regarding life and how it works and what's most important important. And we all need that. I mean, in the midst of the busyness and the everyday stuff of life, it is easy for us to lose sight of what God deems as important, of how God wants us to live. And so Jesus gives us some reality checks to get us back on track so that we can experience the life that he invites us and longs for us to experience. So in Luke chapter 12, we see the example of a guy who thought he was approaching Jesus with one issue, and he ends up run, rushing headlong into a major reality check, not just for him, but for all of us. So look with me at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, obviously, this man is experiencing some family financial dispute, and he wants Jesus to settle it. But notice his words here. He is not wanting Jesus to mediate and problem solve and hear both sides. No, no, no. He wants Jesus to take his side. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, right? That's what he says, which explains the somewhat gruff response Jesus initially gives. Jesus says to him, man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? I mean, Jesus makes it clear that he isn't interested in playing the role that this man is wanting, but he is interested in exposing a deeper issue. Verse 15, then he said to him, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So Jesus defines, he identifies the root issue that is lurking underneath this discussion about family inheritance. And that root issue is greed. 
So what exactly is greed? Well, the word used for greed here is actually a combination of two different Greek words that vividly describe what greed is. One word means to have, and the other means more. And that's what greed is. It is this insatiable desire within all of us to have more in the way of money and possessions. It is a pervasive issue, which is why Jesus says, be on your heart against all kinds of greed. It manifests itself in all sorts of ways. A person with very little in the way of money or, and possessions can be just as greedy as a person with lots right, of, of possessions and, and money. Uh, greed is a heart issue. And Jesus is calling us out on this. He is giving us a major reality check because all of us here, we're all vulnerable to this. Now, there are two specific things Jesus urges us to do in this warning as it relates to greed. You can look this verse again. He says, watch out and be on your guard. Okay, two different things. Watch out, be on your guard. And both of them are critical in in our lives if we want to be free from this destructive force. And so I want to unpack both of these things as we walk through this passage. First of all is the warning, watch out. Watch out for greed. Now, the the word Jesus uses here is a word that literally means to see. In in this context, it means look out. Keep your eyes open to this influence in your life, which is so critically important, especially as it relates to the issue of greed. Because the problem, the, the main problem with greed is that none of us see it very well in ourselves. We see it in everyone else. But we don't see it in ourselves. The guy in the story, he didn't see it in himself, and neither do we. Again, we easily see greed in other people who have more than we do, or who live in a bigger home than we do, or drive a nicer car than we do, right? Have more money than we do. We see those people, and we think, man, they are so greedy. They got a problem with greed, right? But we we rarely see it in ourselves. I talk to people, as a pastor, right? I talk to people all the time who are struggling with some area of of sin in their life, with pornography or with anger or unforgiveness, maybe some addiction all the time. What is fascinating to me is that in in all 27 years of pastoring, I don't recall anyone ever coming to me to share their struggle with greed, to ask me to pray for them about their greed. Does that mean we don't struggle with this? Or does it mean we don't see it in ourselves? See, that's why Jesus' warning here is so clear. Watch out. Open your eyes to see this. Okay, so what exactly are we looking for? How do we recognize whether or not greed is is taking root in our hearts and lives? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage, there there are three warning lights, three indicators that greed is at work in our lives. And I'm going I'm to uh, state each one of these in the form of a question, kind of a diagnostic question. Okay, first diagnostic question. Where am I looking for life? Where am I looking for life? Look, look again at what Jesus says in this verse. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possession. See, when Jesus uses the word life here, he is not talking about biological life. That would be a different Greek word, you know, breathing and heartbeat, all that. No, no, no. The, the word he uses is zoe, 
Zoe, which is where we get the name for our downtown cafe and event center, Zoe's, right? Zoe, the word for Zoe speaks of a quality of life. This is the word John, Jesus used in John 14 when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. See, Jesus is talking about what it means to be fully alive, to find purpose and meaning in our lives. It's, it's exactly, Zoe is exactly what God created us to experience. He wants us to experience the joy and the freedom and the peace of life in him. And here's what Jesus is saying. This kind of Zoe life is not found in having lots of stuff. Which explains why studies consistently reveal that people's happiness is not dependent upon the amount of money they have or the, the, the things that they possess. In fact, we are, without a doubt, we are the richest 1% of people who have ever lived on the planet. I'm not talking about some of us here, all of us here. All of us here. We are in the, in the richest 1% of people who have ever lived on the planet. And yet all, we are also the most unhappy with, with, with soaring rates of suicide and depression. See, what does that indicate? Exactly what Jesus is saying. Life is not found in the abundance of possessions. And yet deep in our hearts, we reject that idea, what Jesus is saying. We reject that notion. We all want more, right? More television, more rooms in our house, more cool features on our cell phone, more salary, more you name it, right? And the, the underlying lie that often drives us in this direction is this. Here's the underlying lie. I would be happier if I just had, and then fill in the blank, right? That's, that's the lie. I would be happier if I just had that, if I made just a little bit more, if I owned that kind of a car, if I did that, just a little, whatever, we fill in the blank. And see, this is really the genius and kind of the depravity of marketing today. Um, it, its primary goal is to convince us that our life is not complete unless we have whatever they're selling, right? Unless we have the latest iPhone, unless we have the newest model of whatever car, unless we have the latest and greatest refrigerator. Or whatever. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. This is the society we live in, folks. This is the ocean we swim in. Um, and, and, and because of that, we don't realize the impact it's having on us because this is just life. This is the ocean we're swimming in. We don't see the impact it's having. We, we don't realize how often we are actually looking for life in having more stuff. I know in my own life, man, I, I struggle with this. I was in Denver um, <clears throat> the other day with Raylene, and I, I stopped into this PGA Superstore. It was the biggest golf, uh, golf store I had ever seen in my life. I mean, seriously, I started to kind of hyperventilate, okay? Um, I could feel some, right? When I walked in, I could just feel something sort of stirring, and all of a sudden, all my stuff was old and out of date, right? I needed something new. I needed a new weather, weatherproof jacket, rainproof jacket or whatever. I needed a new set of irons, you know? I mean, what, what is that? I could feel it. What is that? Well, Jesus tells us it's greed. It, it's this whisper. Your life is not complete. It's not really complete unless you have that. My life is not complete unless I have that. I need that, right? <laughs> that, that's what greed does. It's, it, it, it gets us to confuse our perspective. So listening to that whisper really leads us away from genuine life because within a couple days of purchasing something or a couple weeks of purchasing something, we're going to look, we're looking for something else. 
One of the biggest indicators of our struggle with greed is consumer debt, right? Credit cards enables us to buy more than we could afford instead of waiting until we have the money. And, and see what's happening. We regularly fall for the lie that life is found in having more stuff, even when we can't afford it. We convince ourselves these things are what we need rather than what are we want, right? And when those things get confused, it can cause a huge mess, so credit cards are huge, and, and, and what happens when we start using them in that way for consumer debt, then we end up experiencing the dark side of debt, which is lost sleep, the arguments with our spouse about money, creditors calling, the pressure to work more and more hours, and we end up spending less and less time with our kids, and the inability to, to be generous when we want to be generous because we see a need that we really want to be involved in, but we can't. See, all because we're no longer, we're, we're no longer controlling where our money goes. It's controlling us. The credit card company is controlling that now. See, Jesus is urging us to look out, to op honestly open our eyes, to honestly evaluate our lives in light of this question. What am I looking to for life? Where am I looking for life? Am I, am I looking for life in having more money, more things, more whatever? Am I looking for life there and having the latest this and that or whatever? Is that where I'm looking for life? And so, so Jesus tells us, again, he tells us not only watch out for this, but then he also tells us to guard our hearts against this particular aspect of greed. So how do we do that? I wish, I, I wish it was better. I mean, just easier than, it really is. It's just repentance, right? It's through continual repentance. It's by seeing this propensity in our hearts and then bringing that to the Lord. God, I confess I am more excited about going to Shields than I am about worshiping you. I confess that. I need you to change my heart. You are my life. Give me a greater love for you. See, that, that's, that's a repentant heart, and it's a, it's a continual thing we got to keep doing. Jesus, there it is again. I'm sorry. I just confess this. Okay, so that's, that's the first aspect of greed, diagnostic question and the way we guard against it. Second diagnostic question to evaluate the level to which greed is permeating our is this, who owns my stuff? Who owns my stuff? Who ultimately owns our money and our possessions? Now, there's, there's a spiritual answer that we all can give because we're in church, right? We all know the spiritual answer. Oh, God does, right? We all can say that, but do we really live that way? Do we really live that way? In our heart of hearts, who do we truly believe owns our stuff? This is a huge issue, and it's why Jesus dives right into it by telling a story, a parable. He tells a parable. This is right after the, the man is asked, told him to do this about the inheritance. He jumps into this parable. Verse 16, and he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, so in this story, Jesus tells about this already wealthy man. He's already wealthy, and he has a great year in his business beyond what he could even imagine. His income is off the charts. So he starts thinking to himself, what should I do? Now, notice the paradigm in which he wrestles with this question. You can see it right in the text. I have no place to store my crops. 
I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus of grain. And I will say to myself, eat, drink, and be merry. Clearly, the paradigm in which he viewed his things was the paradigm of ownership. This is mine. I'm going to do what I want to do because I worked hard for this. I'm in charge of my stuff. See, it's clear who he believes owns his money and his possessions. Now, there is, there is something very subtle and insidious that creeps into his heart in this, into this paradigm, in this paradigm of ownership, and yet it's easy to miss because of the translation. Look at verse 19. I don't like the way the NIV translates this because it misses something. Most translations miss this. What this verse literally says, this is the Alan Craft translation right here on this verse, but this is what the verse literally says. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Literally in the text, he is addressing his soul. The soul is our heart, basically. It's the seat of our passions, our longings, our desires. See, what's happening here is that this man's security, his confidence, his trust, those are heart issues. That's being placed in his wealth. He's looking to his wealth as, as his ultimate security and comfort. And we do the exact same thing, don't we? See, when we view our stuff through the lens of ownership, we start to put our hope and our confidence in the amount of money we have in the bank or in our investment portfolio or the number of properties we own or, or whatever. As long as I have this amount, then I'm secure, right? I'm okay. So what does Jesus say about that? Well, here comes the reality check. Verse 20, he's still telling the story, but God said to him, you fool, you fool. This night, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich toward God. See, Jesus calls this man a fool. Now, when we, we, we typically use the word fool in a clownish sort of way, but from a biblical perspective, a fool is someone who refuses to live according to God's wisdom. That's what a fool is. And the book of Proverbs talks about it. It's, just, it's someone who's foolish. You either walk according to God's wisdom or you don't. And this is a foolish path. So the Bible uses this all the time. This word fool. This man is a fool because he has built his life on a false paradigm of ownership. Jesus says, you can find whatever your plans are, but this very night, your life will be taken from you. Then who's going to get what you've prepared for yourself? I mean, that's an ownership question, right? I mean, in, in today's terms, in today's vernacular, Jesus is saying, you can't take it with you, right? Or he's saying the old, I've never seen a hearse dragging a U-Haul or however when, when he used that. That's what Jesus is saying. We don't own our stuff. God does. And as long as we believe the idea that we are the ones in control of our things, that we're the ones who call the shots, we will be allowing greed to wreak havoc in our hearts. We will ine inevitably place our trust in our bank accounts, in our possessions, in the businesses we own, our 401ks or whatever. But none of those things are ultimately in our control. One economic collapse, one health diagnosis that insurance doesn't cover, one hurricane, one flood, and suddenly we are very aware of the fact that we are ultimately not the owners of our stuff. God is, and he wants us to place our trust in him. 
our confidence in him? It's a soul question. So back to the reality check question here. How do you and I view our money and possessions? How do you view your money and possessions? Are you the owner or is God? How do I view it? Am I the owner or is God? Jesus says, watch out, watch out. You got to look out for this. Look out for how greed will creep into your life in this way. And it will lead you down a foolish path rather than a life-giving one. So, so how do we guard our heart in this particular area? If we're looking out and we see it, how do we guard our heart in this, in this aspect of greed? Here's how. It's by intentionally and regularly releasing ownership to him. We need to regularly remind our soul that our cars, our house, our bank account, our business, our mutual funds, whatever these things are not ours. They're God's. The other day, Raylene texted me um, that someone had backed into our car in, in a parking lot, and I immediately felt this surge of anger. Did they leave a note? You know, I was texting her back, and of course they didn't, right? Um, and so, so as I was reflecting on this later, and still kind of angry, as I was reflecting on this later, I just, I sensed the Holy Spirit just gently ask me, hey, Alan, whose car is it? Wh- whose car is it? Is it yours or is it mine? And if it's mine, why are you upset? I should be the one that's upset, right? If it's my car, God says, why are you upset about it? It's a good question. Who owns our stuff? Now, let me suggest, we try to get really practical here. I want to suggest a practical thing we can do to guard our heart in this area. And that is to sign, to actually sign a quit claim deed to God. Okay, so a quit claim deed is an official document, it's an official way to transfer ownership of something to someone else. So what if we prayerfully sat down with a quit claim deed and we just listed all of our possessions, everything we own, and then we deeded it to God, all of it to God. We signed it at the bottom, we just signed it over to him. Now, we've put together, actually, a quit claim deed that you can use for this purpose between you and God. Don't turn it in. It's not about that. <laughs> it is simply a tangible way for you to take this home and express what we're talking about. You can, you can um, just write down all your possessions on it, and then there's a place to sign it and date it at the bottom where you're just, it's a, it's a symbol, but of something in our heart where we say, God, you own this. This is yours. It's kind of an official way in our hearts to do that. And so we, we, you can, after, at the end of the service, I'll give directions. Uh, they'll be on tables as you're leaving. You just pick up a copy as you're leaving and just prayerfully encourage you to do that later. Again, don't turn it in. It's just between you and God. The key, whatever tool we want to use or however we want to do that, the key, and I'm just trying, we're just trying to think of creative ways to do this. The key is to regularly remind our soul, I am not the owner of any of this of my bank account, my investments, my house. I'm not the owner. God is the owner. We've got to keep reminding our soul of that so that we place our trust in God, not in our things, like this man in the parable was doing. He was placing his trust in his things. Okay, third diagnostic question to determine whether or not greed is penetrating and influencing our lives. Here it is. And again, we're encouraging. Let's ask these questions of ourselves. Third question, am I rich toward God? Am I rich 
toward God. This was Jesus' final statement in this parable about this man who had been so focused on himself. Look again at what he says. Jesus is talking. This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. So what does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, it's the opposite of what this man in the parable did. He kept all his money for himself. He was rich toward himself but not rich toward God. So to be rich toward God is to store up financial things for God. How do we do that? Well, later in this passage, Jesus says, sell your possessions, give to those in need. And by doing so, you will be storing up treasure in heaven. You'll be rich toward God. See, the way to be rich toward God is by being generous with our finances and our things. It's to see them not as things to amass and hold on to and hoard for ourselves. No, it's to see them as resources that we get to use to bless others in Jesus' name. So here's, here's Jesus' reality check question. Are you and I being generous with our finances, with our possessions? Now, often, again, we know the church answer, right? Often we instinctively say, yeah, oh, of course. Yeah, we instinctively say, yes, but I, let's get some real data. Okay, let's get some real data. There's really, there's, there's a pretty simple way to answer this question with real data. Here, here's the way to do it. Look at your income the last month or year, whichever time period you want to look at. And then look at the amount of money that you gave to the Lord's work, wherever that is, but the Lord's work, church, parachurch, whatever. The amount of money you gave to the Lord's work in that same time period. And then divide the amount you gave by the amount of income. That's your generosity percentage. Now, most people, and this goes back to the greed thing, most people think their generosity is way higher than it actually is, which is why this exercise is so helpful. Crunch the numbers. Don't just assume, crunch the numbers. Because this exercise helps us see how much of our income we are actually giving away to God. The average giving percentage for Christians in America is, is about 2.7% of our income. That's the average percentage. So 97% for ourselves, 3% for God. So let's look at this. Where would that percentage, it's an average, but accurate, where would that percentage fall in the parable Jesus just told? Is, is that being rich toward God or toward self? See, this parable forces us to look at our lives and to ask some really hard questions. How do we compare to this man in the parable? How rich are we being toward God? Now, I realize, I realize this is hard and, and it stirs up all sorts of stuff in us. I get that, I get that, I get that. But Jesus says, look, this is important to look at. I'm not making this stuff up. This is, Jesus said this. This is important to look at, no matter what our financial situation is. And again, I don't know anyone's financial situation here, except mine. So it's not about me knowing, but it's about whatever our financial situation. Jesus is saying, I want you to look at this. I want you to look at this. Not compared to other people. Just look at this. This is between you and God. We got to look at this. Are we willing to honestly look at our financial situation before God and ask, God, am I being rich toward you? Am I being rich toward you? I challenge you to do that sometime today. Crunch the numbers. Actually crunch the numbers. Get on Quicken or whatever. Crunch the numbers. Look at your generosity percentage. If you're retired and you don't have a regular income, look at your savings to giving ratio. 
how much you have in savings and how much you're giving to the Lord. And then in the same context, ask God, God, am I being rich toward you? Okay, so let's say we do this. Let's say we, and we discover we're not being as rich as towards God as we want to be. Our lives look more like the man in the parable. So what can we do to change this? How can we grow in being rich toward God? Well, God actually has given us an amazing tool to help us in this regard. It's a kingdom principle that can help us guard against greed. I think it's why God gave it to us, to help guard our hearts against greed. The principle is the tithe. The word tithe literally means 10%. It's a concept that was introduced all the way back at the start of Genesis, Genesis 11, before the law was given, or Genesis 14, I think, wherever I forget, but all the way back in Genesis. And then it was, it was reaffirmed in the law of Moses, and then it was also reaffirmed by Jesus himself in Matthew 23 in the New Testament. So the principle of a tithe is this. The first 10% of what we earn belongs to God. It is his. This concept is related to the idea of first fruits. So in the Old Testament, people were urged by God, commanded by God to give him their first fruits, not their leftovers, because the temptation was just to keep, you know, give God the worst of the crops. We want to keep the best for ourselves. That's a greed issue. And God knew that. So he gave this command, right? They they were to give to God the best of their crops, that, that best, that best part, the first 10%, that was known as the tithe. It was a portion of their income that was devoted. That's the language the Old Testament uses. It was devoted to God. It's his. It is his. It belonged to him. In fact, God says in Malachi 3 that that if people aren't tithing, they're actually robbing from him. Interesting. It belongs to him. That's strong language, but it highlights what the tithe is all about. It's a powerful principle that the first 10% of our income belongs to God. It's his. We return it back to him before we pay for anything else. It is our top priority because, again, it belongs to him. It's devoted to him. He deserves our best, not our leftovers. Now, here's what is so powerful about this concept of tithing when we practice it. This is so powerful. When we give to the Lord the first 10% of our income, before our house payment, our car payment, our student loan, our clothes, before anything else, when we give to God first, it is a tangible and powerful way to say to God, you come first in my heart. You come first in my life. Before anything else, you come first. You are first. And not only that, when we practice tithing, it drives a stake through the pull of greed in our hearts because this is a settled decision we make. It's not dependent upon our, dependent upon our feelings. It's not dependent upon our income, you know, if it's good or bad or whatever. It's not, it's not something, oh, we're going to just pray about. It's not something we decide every month whether or not we're going to do. No, no, no. It's just it's non-negotiable. It is a non-negotiable decision that we make that God gets the first 10% right off the top. And the impact of that decision is profound in terms of our hearts. I started tithing when I was 18 years old um, in college, and I haven't stopped. And I'm telling you, there were some seasons in our marriage where financially it made no sense, and we were struggling to write that check. It was like, do we do this or not? We were struggling. But by God's grace, Raylene and I chose to keep tithing. And I'm so thankful because we have experienced his life and his provision in profound ways because we chose to keep putting him first in that way, even when it didn't make sense. 
Now, now I realize when this subject comes up, people will argue the tithe is an Old Testament principle. It's an Old Testament concept. I'm not under the law anymore. I'm under grace. I totally agree that we are under grace. But here's my question. Do you think living under grace means giving anything less than 10% to God? Did Jesus die on the cross to free us from having to give God 10%? See, if you're using grace to argue for giving to God less than a tithe, I think you're missing the heart of grace. Jesus gave his all for us. And he wants us to live generous lives in response to his grace. In fact, I heard a pastor, I'd never heard this before, heard a pastor two weeks ago say something that was so powerful. He said, Jesus was God's tithe. I never thought about that. Jesus was God's tithe. God gave us his best, not his leftovers. He gave us his son. And that gift moves us to give God our best our first fruits, not our leftovers, if we have anything left over. No, 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 our best. See, the tithe is an amazingly, pow amazingly powerful and practical way to guard our hearts from greed and to put God first. Now, please hear me. It is not the be-all and end-all of giving. I'm not saying that. The Bible never, the, the, the tithe is never presented in the Bible as being the ceiling. Oh, you've arrived. If you tithe, you've arrived. That's all you need to do. The Bible never presents it as a ceiling, but it is a great foundation upon which we can build a life of generosity. Now, please hear me. Please hear my heart in this. This is not about guilt. This is not about condemnation. This is about Jesus inviting us into a life of free, into life and freedom, to not let our hearts be ruled by greed, but to experience fullness of life in him. And the tithe is a God-given tool to help us move towards that, to help free our hearts from greed. It's a tool God has given us. Now, often when I teach about tithing, people will ask, what if I have a bunch of consumer debt? You know, I'm kind of in the hole in consumer debt. Should I wait to start tithing? Should I wait until I've paid off all my debts until I start tithing? And think about it this way. You got into debt by putting self first. So the way out of debt is by putting God first, right? See, I believe a decision to start tithing is a crucial part of your journey out of debt because, and this is so important, consumer debt is not ultimately a financial issue. It is not. It is a heart issue. It's what we're trusting and it's what we're saying to our soul. It's a heart issue. And God wants, he wants to deal with our hearts by refocusing our hearts upon him. So if you are not practicing this powerful and biblical principle of tithing, I encourage you to start. Not only will it grow your faith, it will help guard your heart from greed. See, that, that's the bottom line of this whole passage. Jesus wants all of us to experience his Zoe kind of life. And he wants us to realize that greed is an enemy of that. It is, it is an enemy of that. Greed will keep us from experiencing the life Jesus has for us. And the problem is we don't see greed very well in ourselves. So this is a very serious warning. So Jesus urges us to open our eyes, ask these diagnostic questions. 
Open our eyes to honestly see where greed is active in our hearts and then choose to guard our lives and our hearts in very intentional ways. We won't, you won't regret it. You will not regret following Jesus on this one. All right, let's, let's pray together. So we want to we just enter into a time of kind of prayerfulness, um, worship, prayer. Um, so let's just quiet our hearts. And I, I realize this topic can stir our, all sorts of stuff in us. Anger, defensiveness, guilt, shame, whatever. Here, here's what I want you to do. Just hang with me here. Just, here's what you to do. Just close your eyes and just quiet your heart for a moment. And I want you to tune in to whatever is going on in your heart right now. What is it? Is it anger? Are you frustrated? Are you ashamed? Are you, is there excitement? What, what is going on in your heart right now? And here's what I want you to do. Don't, don't condemn yourself for it. Just offer that to the Lord. God, I admit, I'm kind of ticked off right now. What is that about, God? This is your word. So what, what is going on in me? Or God, I give you my shame about this area. I've just made mistakes. I'm so far in debt. I just, I give you that. Just tune into your heart right now and offer that to the Lord in these moments here. 